This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Jonas Prising, who is the chairman and CEO of the Manpower Group. Jonas leads all aspects of Manpower Group's $21 billion business in 80 countries and territories worldwide. He's actively engaged in the World Economic Forum, including as a steward of the future of education, gender, and work global system, co-chair of the Regional Business Council on Europe, and CEO champion on the Digital Transformation Initiative. He speaks five languages, including English, French, German, Swedish, and Italian, and has lived in nine countries across Asia, Europe, and North America. Jonas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So let's start uh, with, with your background. Uh, can you tell us what are some of the defining moments that prepared you to lead the third largest staffing firm in the world? Well, we're a global company operating in over 75 markets. So I guess, you know, living and working and growing up in lots of different countries um, for a business that is fundamentally global, but equally fundamentally local as labor markets are local, um, has been a great advantage to me in terms of understanding differences between cultures and habits and legislation and things and things like like that. Um, you know, but transcending all of that is really this, this belief that lots of different places, faces, religions, all kinds of things are different, but in the end, it's all one humanity. And uh, from a business perspective, that means there are many differences, but there are also many similarities. And you, you grow to appreciate that when you live and work in different environments and different cultures and different circumstances. So I guess that's, that's been tremendously useful to me in my professional career and tremendously enriching as well for me uh, personally and for our family as well. Um, I'm sure, you know, going uh, to so many different places, um, picking up a bag and having to adapt to a new culture. I mean, that, that's uh, uh, certainly challenging, but also, you know, shapes you in a certain way. Yes, no, it does. And it, it, it requires you to learn, you know, th- learn the new skills and new capabilities that might be adjacent to existing capabilities or might be different capabilities. And at the same time, though, you can't change who you are. So, you know, being an authentic leader doesn't mean that it's always done in your way. You certainly have to adapt and you have to learn new things. But there are some core things that have to stay the same. And I think finding that balance has also been very useful, especially as we navigate very turbulent times. And what's really important for leaders, aside from being, you know, have a bias for action and being capable as leaders, we have to have a strong moral compass and know what's right from wrong. And we have to do this in the interest of the organization and have an altruistic view. So really this notion of a stakeholder view as it relates to the company's position within society at large is becoming increasingly important. And I think that has to be reflected as well in, in leadership. Uh, absolutely. So, so very interestingly, you've conducted a major survey recently of 8,000 workers across eight countries to understand their attitudes in the context of the pandemic. And, and what I found the most interesting and perhaps even concerning was this widening gap between two gr- groups that you call 
the haves and the have-nots. So can you discuss this phenomenon and, and, and also the wider findings from the survey? Yes, maybe to, to dwell into that, Harpreet, maybe what's useful to step back and think about what are the structural changes that are happening in mm -hmm. labor markets and, and have become very visible, I think, over the last eight years in particular, but have been you know, going on for a while. And as part of you know, that, that, that analysis that we make, we look at the data and we have been in business for almost 75 years across many, many geographies. And labor markets in our business is inherently very cyclical. It is related to how labor markets do. When the unemployment is, is tough, as in high, then our business is, is more difficult. When unemployment improves and when it gets better, our business is much better. So it's a highly cyclical business. But we started to see some changes in that cyclicality that, were new, that was new to us about 12 to 11 years ago. So labor markets started to behave in ways that was different from what we would have expected to behave based on where they were in the economic cycle. And these are, of course, due, these changes are due to the structural changes that are impacting labor markets all over, which is to do with demographics and aging workforce in all developed countries and a very fast aging workforce also in developing countries, uh, globalization and the impact of how quickly things move between different regions and really the first global generations coming out you know, now where the sentiments and everything else is, is unfettered by geographical boundaries and we are taking impulses at, at the speed of, of light. Um, the impact of technology, which is tremendous. Now, we don't think that the impact of technology impacts as much the it's not the innovation that is the impact, it's the speed of change that is the impact. Mm -hmm. um, the um, advent of how companies thought of the use of human capital. So, you know, it used to be that companies were very intent on growing and, you know, shaping their workforce, keeping them on for a long time. And of course, as we know, through various recessions and with the help of supply chain tools, really companies started to consume labor more than grow their talent and their workforce from a skills perspective. And, and that has led then to a way of thinking around human capital until recently, we believe, that was you know, very, very much in line with supply chain thinking, knowing exactly how many people you need with what skill set and especially at what cost, which drove companies to make decisions uh, around offshoring and other, other decisions. And all of this translating into individuals you know, that saw these changes and are reacting to it, frankly, in quite a rational way, which has to do with, you know, my loyalty is to my career. I'm not loyal to the company because I can't trust the company to take care of me. I have to take care of myself. So all of these were changes that were occurring before that led to a polarization of the workforce in what we call the haves and the have-nots in terms of skills. People with adequate good skills, so good wage progression, good career advancement, and low unemployment rates everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Flip side, low and unskilled labor uh, saw wage, wage growth stagnation, much less opportunities, and much higher unemployment rates um, all over. And what we've seen come out of that are all of the bifurcations in society, whether it's left or right, Roughly 20 to 25% of the population in most developed nations are profoundly unhappy with the structural changes that we just discussed. Mm -hmm. And they have started to vote accordingly. 
And uh, that's why we've seen this polarization occur with sometimes unpredictable outcomes, unexpected outcomes, and sometimes outcomes that don't make sense if you look at the data and the rationale um, behind what's, what's actually happening. Nevertheless, it's the reality we live in. All hmm. of this to come back to your question, Arpreet, sorry for the very long uh, preamble. The pandemic, we believe, is going to accelerate the underlying structural changes in the labor markets in the sense that use of technology is already changing um, the world. Most companies are doubling down on the implementation of technology. As an organization at Manpower Group, we managed to adjust to remote working in 10 days across 75 countries. Most organizations had to do the same and they realized that, okay, that technology resilience is really crucial to my survival and to thriving in the future. So I'm going to be making sure I invest even more in technology. And that of course will lead to a use for a, an increased need for a more skilled workforce. Mm -hmm. in, the, in a sense, and at the same time, the pandemic hit large portions of the workforce engaged in hospitality and service sectors that require lower skills or little skill. And that drives an acceleration of the bifurcation of the workforce and a greater polarization. And I think we saw that in the survey answers. Mm -hmm. You know, you have 8,000 workers that express, you know, what, what does this mean for you in terms of the pandemic? And, you know, what they're saying is clearly holding on to my job because they realize we've moved from a healthcare crisis, which we're still in, to an economic crisis and to a social crisis. And as they get ready for the economic crisis, they're realizing holding on to my job is my number one priority. With one exception, and think back to the technology structural change we talked about earlier, those involved in the IT sector are saying, yeah, I'm not actually that worried about that. I'm thinking with my skills, I'll be fine with, as far as the work uh, is concerned. So that would be one driver. Holding on to the job is the primary objective as they can see us moving straight into recession from a healthcare crisis. The second point that, that came out of the survey is different differences in terms of generations as to what they see as the long-term impact and how they want to engage with the workforce. Um, baby boomers generally would like to come back to the workplace and engage in the old ways of working as quickly as possible. Um, younger generations very, the younger generations are equally interested in coming back because they've not really had the opportunity to engage. Millennials and you know, Gen, Gen Z are much more reluctant you know, for various reasons, and in particular the millennials, because they have discovered the benefits of managing family, their lives, children, all kinds of things in a different way that they really, really like. And, you know, they realize that they have concerns around engaging and coming back to the workplace uh, faster. And the third point is, it's clear that there's also gender difference between how eager uh, men and women are to come back to work with women being much less interested in coming back, which I think can be related to the need for childcare and the burden, frankly, that the pandemic has put on women, an, an additional burden on top of what everybody else has been feeling women have taken the brunt of what is needed in terms of childcare and elder care. Uh, and that is really reflected in their desire to come back, which is much lower 
than those of men. And those would be the three main findings that I think are very interesting from this survey. Yeah, and, and I, I'm wondering whether this whole idea of now companies engaging in digital transformation in an unprecedented way where you've got uh, companies that never thought about remote work are now forced to be remote. And, uh, and you know, on this show, I've had CHROs from various companies and they're saying, you know, we may not have most of our people come back to the office, right? We are rethinking office space. Uh, and uh, so that, that opens up another question that then a lot of these jobs that the current administration or um, the, the legislators across the world, uh, you know, are trying to hold on to so that they are not shipped abroad or brought back, right? With the remote work opening now, many of these jobs are inevitably going to end up uh, in countries where the wages are lower, right? Because uh, it doesn't really matter if the remote work is here or somewhere else. Yeah, th th some of that may happen, but frankly, some of that could happen already before. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest change from a uh, pandemic and the remote working impact is, you know, when you think about, you know, we, we believe that the biggest power of technology is to augment human capability as opposed to destroying, you know, eliminating jobs. Because in the end, it's not what technology can do, is what human humans wanted to do that will be determined to what degree technology either eliminates jobs that are dangerous and boring and repetitive, as well as enhances jobs to make them more meaningful and really play to the strength of humans in terms of, uh, you know, creativity, ingenuity, um, you know, collaboration, communication, things like, like that. Um, we think that the lasting legacy of the pandemic is primarily going to be the realization of companies and their workforces and their employees that it is possible to have a different balance between work life and how the freedom to choose how to work gets expanded. Uh, and this is something that we've measured actually over many years when we've done surveys with, with workers in terms of what the workers want. They really want to have more freedom to decide to skip the rush hour commuted at 7 to 30 a.m. and rather go to work at 10 or not to work on Thursdays because whatever circumstances would make that you know, easier for them in their personal lives. And I think that's what this pandemic is going to leave as a lasting legacy. Clearly, what and how much real estate and facilities you still need, if that is how you're working, is something that is yet to play out. But I think it's safe to assume that the physical real estate you know, could change very significantly. But fundamentally, the need for individuals to connect in person for um, interaction and teamwork and you know being able to really do what we do best as human that proximity is still going to be very important so we don't think the pendulum swings to everybody's working remotely or that offshoring suddenly takes you know takes takes hold again uh, but we do think that it will permanently change how we are thinking about our workforces and where they need to be to do certain things and that greater flexibility for the benefit of companies and for the benefits of the workforce is going to be the lasting legacy of the pandemic. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Expertify differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. 
However, Expertify Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expertify platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expertify.com for more information. You have talked about uh, a shift in the labor market where there's a growing importance of a freelance economy and also increased segmentation within the labor market overall. So how, can, can you talk about this phenomenon? Well, it's a phenomenon that's been ongoing for quite some time, maybe over the last 30 years. Most of the job growth, job growth has come from the non, if you want to call it that way, non-traditional forms of employment. Be it, you know, the, up until... Um, you know, 30 years ago, the virtually the only form of employment was a full-time 40-hour, 45-hour, depending on where you were, hour work week, and that was sort of the, the norm. But most of the job growth has come with the evolution of new forms of engaging with, with work, such as part-time, which enabled lots of women to come in, temporary assignments, which also enabled many different uh, categories of talent pools to come and be accessible to the companies, to freelance. And we think this is a continuation that we, we'll, we're going to see also going forward. But again, I think the important part here is to think about these as incremental and substantial changes and additions to the workforce. It's not a wholesale shift. So sometimes, you know, we, we hear discussions around the evolution of the freelance nation, everybody is, is going to be working you know, independently. And we don't think that's true at all. We think, again, human preference means there are certain times in your life when you really want to have stability, when you have, want to have predictability, you want to have a relationship that is more predictable than other forms of employment. And that's why you know, full-time employment is going to be a great solution and will still be the predominant way of engaging with many organizations. There will, however, be many more options and segmentations of the ways you can engage that will evolve over time. Some of them, if you think about the debate we're having in many states and frankly in many countries as well around the gig economy uh, is and the gig way of engaging, most of those jobs are second or third jobs. So they're not the replacement of a full-time job. They're a, a complement to either physical resources that you have, such as apartments that you want to rent out or time that you have on your hand so that you can engage in some other activity, you know, driving, driving a lift or doing something like that. Um, we think that's going to continue, but we don't think that that's going to be the majority at all. It's just going to be another way that enables individuals to engage with work in a different way than what they were traditionally able to do. So, so how do you see this, um, the current uh, situation playing Lyft and others uh, who are engaging in worker classification? Well, I, I think the interesting part for us here is that we see really history repeating itself. If I think back about the evolution of the industry that, that we are in, you know, there was a time when our industry was uh, started in 1947, right after the Second World War here in the U.S., and it was really tapping into 
the millions of women that had been engaged in the workforce during the war effort that were displaced by the returning soldiers. There was a ready and willing and skilled talent pool available uh, to work and who wanted to work. And, you know, this new notion of temporary assignments was something that was brought in and, you know, it caught fire and then very quickly went uh, across the world as a new form of providing flexibility for the companies and flexibility for the individuals. But during that process, as we got uh, bigger as an industry, first we flew under the radar because it was an occurrence and it wasn't really an industry. As it became more popular in countries all over the world, um, you know, the legislators and the unions realized, oh, this is a, a fast growing part of the labor market that we have no involvement in. It's an anomaly. You know, we really don't like it. We're either trying to stop it or we're trying to understand how it can be integrated. Ultimately, you know, the industry created a legal framework that regulates uh, the flexible part together with the employer obligation part. And so we are a industry and a company that pays our taxes, provides for healthcare, um, you know, social security, training, all of those things are provided for, and we are the employer of record. Yet we provide fantastic flexibility, both for the individual and for the companies that are our clients. And we think that the gig industry is essentially going to go through exactly the same evolution. Uh, we've been surprised at the reluctance on their part, in some ways understandable given how their financial models work, to engage in this. But I don't think that a model, a business model that does, you know, that, that, that essentially becomes a free rider model where many of the social obligations are not covered in the cost of engaging with the workforce, uh, we don't think that's a sustainable model. And certainly it wasn't going to be sustainable for our industry. And, you know, after, you know, just reasonably, reasonably early in the, in the birth of our industry, 10, 15 years afterwards, we've had to establish a legal framework and a way of engaging with all of the stakeholders that make it valuable for all of them. I think the gig economy will have to do exactly the same um, so that it accurately reflects the value that it provides not only to the companies and not only to the individuals, but to society at large as well. Yeah, then I, I think that that evolution is likely to happen now that the legislators are right in moving this direction. So companies yes. are not going to have a choice. Yeah, they're not going to have a choice. And, you know, in most of most of Europe, you know, that is the legislature are taking action. You've seen it here in the States as well. And I think it's a good thing for the industry. I think it's a tremendous business model that has great, great value for mm -hmm. us as consumers or workers. And I think it's very valuable for organizations as well and for society at large. So it's just a matter of finding the right balance where that value creation is shared in a way that is also reflected for society at large. Mm-hmm. So you, you've been uh, promoting uh, this notion that the CEOs uh, should become the chief, you know, learning officers, essentially adopt that kind of a mantle uh, in their roles. And, uh, and I, I think the, uh, so it's a very interesting notion, given the skills gap and uh, how skills are accelerating. Perhaps uh, if you can speak to that a bit. Yeah, it comes back to the idea that the workforces are polarizing based on, you know, the people with skills and people without, without skills. 
But the same is true within organizations as well. Skills, due to the evolution of technology, skills will atrophy. And the value creation in business models is going to shift where technology is going to take over many aspects of things that are transactional, that can be repeatable, automatable, or where technology can augment human capability. But it does require one thing, which is a more skilled workforce. So as a society, we think reskilling and upskilling of the workforce at scale is the defining challenge of our time. If we manage to transition this technological revolution, this era of globalization in a good way, we have to also be able to accompany this with a skills revolution. Mm-hmm. And for a, an organization, the same thing is true. So we have to build organizations where the expectation of our team members is that they continue to acquire skills as they go on in their careers. And, and I think that's going to be really important to have because the evolution is going to be moving very quickly also within organizations and companies. And, you know, for employees to have a long-term future, it's going to be really important for them to continue to get new skills, better skills within the companies and where they operate. And I think as organizations, what we need to be comfortable with, and I, I think historically there's been a reluctance in this area, is your way of attracting talent and building an employer brand is that you're going to provide people with the opportunity to enhance their skills and their employability for jobs within your organization, but that you're equally comfortable having done that and they leave for another organization. So this idea that we can make this training programs proprietary and try and get a guarantee that I invest in you. So I got to know that you pay me back, you know, I think that's an equation that's going to be difficult. I think we just have to realize as organizations, it's our obligation to help our people acquire the skills that make them successful. Ultimately, it will make the organization successful. And yes, some of them will come to us, they will acquire skills and they will leave. But that's going to be part of the business model. We just have to acknowledge that because I think the downside of not shifting the skills of your workforce at the speed of the market or at the speed of the technology required to continue to drive value creation in your business, that's going to require faster moves within your own organization. So you're not left with 25% of the population where eventually you say in analysis, well, you know, their skill sets are not good enough. You know, I don't know what we're going to do. And of course, ultimately what organizations then have to do is they have to restructure, which is immensely painful, very risky, and uh, costs a lot of money and costs a lot of, causes a lot of pain to the organizations doing it. So I think that's why as, as leaders in the organization, we have to own the fact that as part of our brand promise to our people is that you can join our organization and you know, I don't promise for how long you'll be in this organization, hopefully for a very long time, but regardless for whatever time period you're here, you will create, you will have a better portfolio of skills when you leave us than when you started with us. And that's going to benefit the individual and ultimately also going to benefit the organization. So, so, so the, the, the skills are obviously an important uh, element here. And, and given the, the speed at which they're changing, do you see that there is a, a different kind of a, a way in which training must be imparted by organizations? Is, 
uh, rather than the status quo that they have? I think it's going to be really important to try and find the shortest path possible for the next level of skill acquisition um, because the idea that we would ask our people to engage in long training programs, engage resources over time, you know, for a large part of the workforce is just unrealistic. It's unrealistic from a societal perspective and it's unrealistic from a organizational perspective. We need to find paths that provide us with the maximum benefit as quickly as possible, which is incremental. It'll be an incremental improvement, um, but then you can continue to build on that improvement. And in fact, it's something that we're working on as an organization um, to try and understand through our programs and leveraging data and our understanding of supply and demand, you know, what is it, what's the shortest path for the maximum output as in increase in wages that we can find for the talent that works and engages, engages with us. And mm -hmm. I think that's going to be the key. And frankly, when you think back about all of the various phases of the equivalent of the industrial revolutions, all of them have always been accompanied by the corresponding revolution in education and training. Mm -hmm. But this time in the so-called so fourth industrial or fourth, fourth industrial revolution, um, you know, we've not seen any change. Mm -hmm. And what might be happening, actually, what, what, what one of the side effects of the pandemic might be is to truly illustrate, you know, as, for as painful as online learning can be, um, you know, this might be the impetus for a scale change on how we're able to upskill and reskill our workforces in a, in a more fundamental way and in different ways. Um, I have, you know, I have kids that are working from home or that have, you know, been schooled remotely, but it's essentially the physical experience translated to a digital experience, which is not engaging. It's very difficult to maintain, you know, focus for many, for many kids and the outcomes in terms of acquisition of knowledge are at best doubtful. Um, and of course, large parts of our school systems don't have the technology or the privileges that others do in terms of accessing the information. So for them, the outcomes will be even worse. Mm -hmm. And this might be really a pivot point where, you know, we, we understand how to make better use of technology to give greater access to learning opportunities for everyone, uh, students and workers alike. Mm -hmm. So on this uh, show, we've had uh, Tom Davenport uh, uh, come and uh, remark that one of the biggest beneficiaries of AI are platform businesses, right? Because uh, they're able to match resources, optimize supply and demand. And I, I'm sure staffing too is, you know, changing because of platforms. So I'm, I'm wondering how is Manpower Group leveraging AI and platforms to future-proof itself? Well, when you think about the, um, you know, our, uh, the business model and what we provide as a value to our customers, it's really uh, operational and strategic flexibility at various skill levels, anything from a logistics worker to an IT, uh, you know, Java specialist and, you know, everything in between on a temporary or a contract basis as well as on a permanent basis. So we have a tremendous flow into our system of millions of people, we employ millions of people 
every year and we meet maybe 10 million job seekers and hundreds of thousands of companies that are looking for that, for that talent. But fundamentally, we are providing that operational and strategic flexibility with a workforce that is our workforce that is working on assignment with our client base. Part of delivering that value proposition in the past was depending on the physical location of branches that were able to attract the talent to fulfill that promise. So we had four and a half, almost 5,000 branches globally whose only mission was to be there so that we could attract the talent. It wasn't as much for the organizations. It was all to do with the talent that you know, did not want to travel very far and doesn't travel very far to look for opportunities. It's a proximity business. And that has changed fundamentally with the advent of technology. So whilst the overall business proposition of strategic and operational flexibility does not get that much impacted by technology, the components of how we create that value are changing tremendously and primarily in the phases of sourcing and finding talent. We don't need physical infrastructure to do it. We do leverage AI and platforms, frankly, to ease the flow of talent into our pipeline that we can then assess and match with the opportunities and then manage and payroll and then do all of that while collecting the data that ultimately is going to help us predict performance to a much greater degree. And because we have a closed loop of finding the talent, match, assessing them, uh, ma matching them with the opportunity, and then staying in touch with them through the whole cycle, and then putting them back into the cycle again. So we collect a full loop on millions of people in terms of what, what we thought they were good at, how they turned out to be good, and then and so, so forth. So we are going to be leveraging AI and, you know, really, you know, prediction at a, in, in really, which is what AI ultimately is. It's a cheap form or a better form of predicting an outcome uh, mm -hmm. at scale. Um, and applying it to the individuals or whatever you're trying to do and prefer preferences. Uh, and it will have a tremendous impact in how we do our business. It doesn't change the overall value proposition, but how we create that value is going to change dramatically with the help of technology and AI specifically. So what, what are some of the trends that you're seeing when it comes to hiring? Um, uh, you know, is, is there a growth in the hiring of contingent talent because of the pandemic or, uh, you know, because you see all these people getting laid off and, uh, you know, job, joblessness is accelerating, even though things are starting to come back. But uh, so do you see that uh, contingent talent is becoming important? And do you see expansion of uh, certain skill sets over others? Well, I, I would point to a few trends. I would say that, you know, the healthcare crisis really made labor markets come to a screeching halt. And the labor markets generally, in most parts of the world, were at peak or very close to peak employment. Mm -hmm. So we, we went from there to the unpredictable situation of a healthcare crisis, putting that to a, a very quick and rapid freeze, dropping down to levels of the financial crisis of the Great Recession or below in, in a very short time period. And now, as we are working our way under a, shall we say, more predictable healthcare crisis scenario, we are emerging into an economic recession. So labor markets, whether they are seeing it, as in the States, or whether they are being 
you know, hidden as in Europe, are in a, um, in a recessionary environment with the corresponding levels of unemployment. Now, we've seen unprecedented amounts of stimulus being put into the system, which could, you know, give us hope that the, the level of unemployment ultimately, you know, won't be as bad or won't be as bad for as long as we otherwise would see in a recessionary cycle. But I think the labor markets are going to be, you know, in a more difficult shape for some time. Um, you know, the, the reality, of course, of the organizations, you know, operating at peak employment levels meant with no real discernible change to the external environment that would cause things to change. Well, that, that really, you know, changed a lot with the advent of the pandemic and how quickly that changed. So we believe that the, you know, the, the need for operational strategic flexibility is going to become even more important as organizations think about the future. They will say, hey, sometimes we think we can predict a lot of things, but then the unpredictable happens. So the ability to have some flexibility to quickly move in an agile way to adjust to changing external environment or to something that's happening in our industry is, we believe, going to be more important going forward even than companies thought in the past. And I think that's going to be a big benefit for our industry. And of course, we hope that we see uh, a lot of that benefit as well in our business. Any parting words for our audience? Well, I would say that, you know, with all of the changes that we're seeing, I think we have reason to be optimistic on a number of fronts. You know, we have uh, the opportunity now to really respond to some of the needs of the workforce with the experiences that we've made during the pandemic. If we ever needed an impetus to reskill and upskill our workforces at a national level and at an organizational level, I hope and believe that this is going to be um, you know, the moment when we marshal our resources in the same way that we're marshaling them to combat the pandemic, not maybe the same amount of resources, but we truly take the opportunity to say, you know, we want to make sure that we build a society that benefits all. Because ultimately, all of the structural changes in the labor markets that we have left and that have driven and, you know, the labor markets to polarize very significantly, which also has driven populations to polarize very significantly. That ultimately is not the best way to drive um, economic growth and shared prosperity. Because ultimately, if it's not sustainable for one part of the population, it will become unsustainable for greater society as well. And I think that's why we're seeing some of these social crises uh, occurring and erupting now. And I believe that this is the moment when we can really start to take control and shape this, both from an organizational perspective, but also from a societal perspective, and really think about what is it that we need to do to bring this together to provide the tools and in our case we believe it is skills to the workforce that doesn't have it so that they also feel that they have an opportunity to partake in the opportunity in the future and and feel good about the changes that are happening as opposed to opposing them or feeling sub subjected to them with negative outcomes on their part so we are running through a very turbulent time um, but I believe that through, with the right leadership in the organizations, as in the right leadership in nations, this is a very important moment for us to seize 
and take control within a positive in a positive way so we come out of this stronger than we were coming into it no, very well said and I, I agree there are many reasons to be positive thank you so much for your participation today really enjoyed it thank you very much Aubrey. thank you for listening to this episode of the future of work pioneers podcast please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.